Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect Pacific Northwest authors with new listeners and provide advice for inspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. So hi there, listeners to the authors of the Pacific Northwest. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. And this week, I have the pleasure of introducing to you Cheryl Scarborough. So I probably, I hope I got it right. Did I get it right, Cheryl? did. It sounded great. (laughs) Fantastic. Awesome. So Cheryl, say hi to everybody, uh, all of our listeners. Hi, listeners. It's good to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you here, and and I'll explain just a little bit why um, in a bit. But first, let's introduce you a little bit about what state you live in here in the Pacific Northwest. I I live in Washington State, Southern Washington. Um, I live in a small town called Kalama, about 30, 35 miles from Portland. Yep. So Kalama, you guys, is a little bit, I think, let's see, south of me. So she's in my area. Kalama has a little bit of a literacy um, heritage, doesn't it? <laughs> we had a movie that was filmed there a while That's ago. That's right. That's right. It is a an, uh, a, an actual twilight location. It is. It is. I we, think it was... I I didn't always live here. Sorry for for stepping on you there. I didn't always live here. Um, I've only been here about two and a half years. Prior to that, I lived in um, Southern California. And for people who live up here, there's actually actually a funny story about some scenes in my book that uh, to people who live up here would be meaningful, which we can get to later. Oh my gosh, I'm so interested because I've been a Pacific Northwestern or Washington State girl my whole life. Kalama, we um, we had I had a lot of friends that lived in Kalama, so where I live, Longview, Kelso, and Kalama, where I feel like we're really close to each other, um, yeah. and and so I had a lot of friends in Kalama. But I was here when the Twilight books came out and then when they did the filming so of course my daughters were younger and I took them up to where the area was being filmed and stuff so if you're Twilight fans and you haven't hit Kalama I would suggest Kalama and avoid Forks with all your heart because it's a long long way up to Forks and there's not a whole lot there (laughs) that's right that's right. Yeah. So, so let's start out by talking real quickly. So there might be some listeners that don't know you. So I always ask this one pretty good stumper question right out of the bat. Um, what do you want readers to know about you up front? And it can be anything. Um, well, I've been basically writing my entire adult life. Um, I have written Uh, I've written for children's television. I've written comic books. I've written restaurant reviews. I've written theater critiques. Um, The restaurant was for good food and the theater critiques was for great seats. (laughs) And now I'm writing young adult mysteries. And the, the, the funny thing is, is that, and I'm talking about a career of over 20 years doing these other things. And I came up with this idea that I always envisioned would be uh, young adult novels. And, but I, I tried pitching it to television first. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, television being what it is, that didn't happen. But one of the things they said to me is they said, um, you know, you're not a showrunner, even though you've written a lot of television. And so a showrunner that would take on your show um, would want to share in the 
the uh, the rights, the created by rights, which is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to give give up the rights? They said, unless it's been written as a book, even if it's not published, if it's been written as a book, it qualifies for copyright. And then you then you don't have to give away the rights. And I said, well, it's not a book. And yes, I would agree to give away the rights. I, I would be okay with that. And then they decided um, this particular time, they said, well, we're ready to go, but I think we want to wait a year. And we'll, we'll revisit this a year from now. And I came home and I told my husband, I said, well, <laughs> you know, cancel the vacation. You know, it's <laughs> been happening. And he said, so write the book. And I'm like, what book? And he goes, the book, so you don't have to share the rights. And I said, well, I guess I could do that. And I did. And it turned out that that's what I should have been writing all along. Oh, I love it. How smart. Now, husbands, I have a good one. And he's always the one pushing me to get everything done and and to write. So I like your husband already. (laughs) I guess he had some good wisdom there, right? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So tell our listeners what you're currently, um, what's your genre you're currently um, writing in? Because I I absolutely love this genre to death. (laughs) Uh, Well, what I've published in is uh, young adult, young adult mystery thrillers. Um, I have um, two books, the the first one and then the sequel. Um, I'm working on another a proposal for another series, another young adult series now. But I also I gained a lot of uh, a lot of adults read young adults, mm-hmm. young adult work, and I've gained a lot of adult readers. And I have another idea that's um, that basically the characters are adults, but it would still be a mystery thriller. Oh, fantastic! I have two things that I'm working on. Okay, so are your um, stories, do they come from accounts of actual events or are they made up in your head or you take it kind of from both? Well, my, I love true stories that, you know, true stories that could really happen. When, when I worked in television, um, I worked a lot in animation and uh, a lot of what we were supposed to do was was things that couldn't happen in live action, things that, so we did a lot of fantasy. Mm-hmm. But I like the constraints of doing something, you know, that has to be based in reality. In, in my book, the first one, it's called To Catch a Killer. Mm-hmm. And the, the pitch is basically, it's a 16-year-old girl who uses forensics and her high school biology lab to solve two murders, one of them being the murder of her mother. And I researched all of this, but also my publisher, they, the, they went back and they, they fact-checked everything that I did. And there were things wow. that I had to, there, there were things, there were actually forensic procedures that changed from the time I wrote the book until it was time to be published. And there were things that I had to change. Oh, that's awesome. You know, I, so it is... Um, it's been fact-checked and I, and I like the constraints of that because, you know, you, you can't just make up something on the spot. It has to, it has to really, it has, it has to be real. It has to play. Oh, I love it. I think that's fantastic because it adds an element of writing for you that it probably keeps it really interesting and you have to really know what you're talking about. (laughs) So you become an expert in it. Exactly. And, um, and you know, it's, it's sort of that adage, truth is stranger than fiction. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that the truth? So the reason why I love your genre besides, I mean, I, I, I think I love every genre of authors that come here is that 
my podcasting experience started out by listening to podcasts to um, Unsolved Crime podcasts. And so my sister got me addicted to them. Thank you, my sister. So, you know, it got to the point where I was listening to so many of them. I'm like, I got to stop listening to some of these. It's like, I'm getting a little paranoid. (laughs) We all listen. We all love these. I listen to them. My husband listens to them. We talk about them over dinner. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're great. And I got my husband, since he commutes quite a bit, I got him into a couple of them. And so we, you know, so that started my podcast journey. And then I started just, you know, went into this writing journey and publishing journey and um, found great authors with a lot of information. I'm like, I can do a podcast. Thus, here I am. So, um, so my first love is really mystery podcasts, um, but I have taken a break from them so that I can, you know, focus a little bit. So I love that you're doing this genre. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of, I would say fun as a reader, but also as a writer, I think it would be very fun to do a mysteries um, kind of type writing. So awesome. So are you, are you self-published, indie published traditionally? Have you had a, I know you've had a long career, but with these particular books, which, what would you call yourself as a published author? Um, these are, these are true. I'm traditionally published. Um, um, my publisher is Tor Teen, mm-hmm. which is a division of Macmillan. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt like, um, you know, 20 plus years in the entertainment business, I felt like, oh, uh, you know, I can handle, I, I can handle publishing. In fact, you know, I pretty much thought it was going to be easy. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. Yes. <laughs> it was not fast and it wasn't easy. And there were things that I needed to learn. And I ended up um, sort of taking a detour. It took seven years from the time I you know, started this process until the book actually came out. And I ended up taking a detour through uh, a master's program. Oh, nice. And that was the thing that really pushed it over the edge for me. Nice, nice. And that master's program, was it the MFL uh, Master's Fine Art Writing Program where you were working on concentrating on the writing process? and. And I, I, so I have a master's, I have a master's in library science, but I really am considering to my husband's dismay possibly that I might do another one. (laughs) Well, here's the thing when you're, you know, if, well, because I knew I I wrote for children. So I kind of felt like, um, I, I, and I still do feel like I was, um, a children's specialist, you know, because there's a lot of things that you learn writing for television that you don't always see, you don't see the same level in, you know, in reading like young, young adult books, um, because I don't know why, but, you know, in TV, they, you know, it's like, you have to make everything relevant, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to, you know, so you don't, if you're going to do something, like if you're going to talk about Rocky, you know, like, uh, the Sylvester Stallone movie, um, you know, it's like, it has to be relative to, you know, relevant to your audience because they weren't around when that movie was made. Mm-hmm. And there's a technique for, for writing things to make them relevant like that, that you don't always see in publish publishing. But at any rate, I felt like I was a, a children's specialist. And so, and I like reading young adult, And, uh, so that's where I felt that, that I would go you know, is right, is work in the young adult area. Mm-hmm. So the MFA program that I went to was, um, it was a, a low residency program, Vermont College of Fine Arts. Mm-hmm. And they have, they have a, a regular writing program for, you know, people who are writing uh, primarily adult fiction. Um, 
And then they have one that's geared specifically for writing for children and young adults. And that's the one I went to. Okay. So going to the, the writing process for you in the, in your master's program, um, did you get the opportunity, I'm sure, to really develop your support groups? Because I like to talk about support groups with our authors. Um, and are you still part of that? Do you have a support group that you developed and you're still part of it? Or are you part of other support groups like online ones or um, anything you can suggest to individuals like myself? Well, you know, I do believe that that the writer support group is one of the most important things you can develop. It's like you need your tribe. Mm-hmm. And um, going through a master's program will definitely give you access, you know, to a tribe. Um, Vermont College, they're, they're particularly aggressive in sticking together and finding each other online. Even, you know, even people who were, like, who were, I graduated in um, winter of 2013. Mm-hmm. But I am still, you know, getting friend requests and friending people who were there now at Vermont oh, College. Nice. I may never meet them face to face, but... Um, but it's a very, you know, tight knit organization. And when, when we have books that come out, everyone, you know, pays it forward. They forward the, uh, forward the links and the information and, you know, they show up. So it is definitely important. I love it. I love it. So the support group for me is really important. I work collaboratively, even though I work from home, very collaborative working um, environment remotely. And so, you know, living in our area, if you guys know our area, it does feel a little sparse in creative arts. And so I had to go out and start finding authors and that, so that developed a really nice support group. Um, I had to become fearless and say, okay, first I'm going to be a writer. Now I'm going to find authors (laughs) and find people. Um, And online groups are fantastic. So I always like to ask that question for any other listeners that are out there, you know, what, what kind of support groups do you use in associations um, so that they, it help point them in the direction and they won't right. mind have to hunt. Are you part of any writing associations? Well, um, I don't, so because young adult um, is considered children's, I belong to um, SCBWI, which is the Society of Children Books, Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Mm-hmm. And they are an international organization. There are chapters all over the world and certainly all over the United States. And so if someone is interested in writing um, picture books, chapter books, middle grade books, young adult, even like new adult, um, it's worth checking out this, the SCBWI. Um, you can go online, find them, find individual chapters. They frequently have like meetups and classes and retreats and and a lot of these things are open you don't have to be a member to uh to attend i think that they may charge non-members a little more mm-hmm. but you could actually attend like a retreat or something like that um you know and just see if you like it awesome i think that's a great tip so cheryl you mentioned one thing that i'm curious about when you're listing you know the different types of genres of children's. Um, what is new adult? Do you know what the definition kind of is for that? I know what young adults are because that's a category I helped categorize books for in a library, but maybe you can define for our listeners, maybe the difference between young adult and new adult. New adult, I would say, and it's fallen a little bit out of favor Mm -hmm. right now because there was a big push for it, but I would say that it's, it's sort of sexier than high school um, that it's maybe a little edgier. Um, I think that for me, young adult 
is is a lot of it is about first experiences, first time falling in love, first time, you know, um, you know, coming up against, you know, something that's really hard, you know, those kinds of things. New adult, they're a little savvier, a little riskier, maybe they're college age. Um, and so it's the things that, that would get thrown out in a young adult book. Wow, that's, that's a great definition. I appreciate you sharing that with me because I didn't know that there was... I think every genre kind of has sub-genres or sub, you know, sections, especially when you look on Amazon and how people can categorize their books. So that's fantastic. So, well, I, you know, I have, I have a theory, which um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll no, tell you. Please share. If you don't, if you don't think it pertains to the podcast, feel free to, you know. So about the genres. So it goes, you know, picture book, you know, chapter book, middle grade, uh, young adult, there's like a yet sort of a, a tween, kind of a young, young adult, and then a regular young adult, and then new adult. And after what I think comes after new adult is, is like mommy lit, you mm-hmm. know, where, you know, it's, um, you know, women who have, you know, small children and, and, and they're dealing with those things. And after mommy lit, then you start getting into women's fiction. And a lot of adults of all ages read young adult new adult and, and, uh, mommy lit, but don't necessarily read women's fiction. And I have talked to these readers because they're readers of my books. And, and I found the same thing when I went through my, my master's program, you know, I read primarily in my category in young adult. And when I came out, it's like, I'm going to read something written for adults. I need, I need a palate cleanser. (laughs) What I found is that there were things in women's fiction that there wasn't a lot of justification for. And there were things that if you're like sort of a happy, well-adjusted, you know, female adult, you don't really want to live in the space of, you know, um, extramarital affairs, you know, his or hers, um, an over-dependence, reliance, or abuse on pharmaceuticals, his Mm -hmm. or hers, you know. Mm -hmm. And, And these things, and then also there's like, you know, some violence and stuff. And it's like, I just kind of feel in a way that that women's fiction has sort of abandoned, you know, just basic normal women. And that's why that's why a lot of adult women read young adult, because, you know, you can sort of get all the same feels without having the stuff that you're not that happy reading about. I love it. What absolutely fascinating. And I'm glad you brought that up because it does bring up a lot of ideas and discussions on my mind in my own head about how there is a need for for that particular type of writing for, like you said, women that aren't necessarily wanting to read all that other stuff, you know, they're not into like romance or maybe they're not into all that, but they still want to read fantastic stories about um, other women that, that mirror them. That's fantastic. There were three books that I read in a year for, you know, and they were, you know, mysteries. Um, and, and they were good. They were well-written. They were really, they, you know, the problem wasn't in the writing, but it just seemed like such a cheap shot. It's like, really? My husband's mm-hmm. going to have an affair in this one too? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, kind of like, I don't know. I don't watch a lot of daytime TV, but every time I accidentally click it on or if I'm at the gym in the day and I watch 
and I see the drama on TV, I'm like, it's the same thing over and over again. It's like, how do the writers do this? How can they, it must be a kind of a sad existence in, in drama, daytime drama. As a I think it's also, you know, it's like, listen, if, you know, we're writers, we should be, you know, and, and women's lives are dramatic enough without all of that. Oh. So very true. <laughs> right? Yes. You know, we should be able to do that without all of that. Like in my case, just add a crazy two dogs into my life and my children are grown and they're healthy, happy children. But believe me, I have plenty of activity going on you know. without all the extra crazy drama. I know, exactly. So yeah. absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I love that. So you authors that are listening to this podcast, maybe you'll be inspired to start writing in that particular area because there's a need for it. So fantastic. Thank you. Um, let's talk about marketing because you and I were talking just a little bit about marketing um, before we actually hit record because I'm working on a small project for authors that come onto the podcast about marketing. Um, nothing major, trust me, but it's a little bit. Um, so do you do your own marketing even though you're with a publishing house? And if so, what's your best tip for someone like me? Well, um, I was, I was fortunate enough that the, my publisher gave me a publicist to oh. start on the first book and they did an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of, so they didn't do they, I didn't have a, uh, a publicist for the sequel. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, you know, they, they, they pushed the first one and then the second one sort of has to find its, its way. But I followed, um, what they did. For the second one. Oh, smart. <laughs> so what they, you know, I think the best way, um, the things that, that, that you want to get is you want to, you want your book to be on a list mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I found this just sort of looking at my own life. It's like, I'm busy and trying to stay on top of, you know, what's getting, what's new that's coming out. I read the list. So if it's a a library list or if it's a, if I come across a list somewhere about, you know, these 10 books of summer or something, I'm going to go, you know, scan down that list. Mm -hmm. So you want to get on a list. So, so as you're going through, you know, the internet looking for different things, start looking for where, you know, who's publishing the lists. And then when you have your book ready to go, you know, follow, follow through, contact them mm-hmm. and, and, and try to get on the list. The second thing that I saw, and this was, I noticed it right before my book came out, my first one. And uh, you know who Elizabeth Gilbert is? Uh-huh. Yep. So I was just browsing online and this was like an article for like a woman's magazine. It might've been like goodhousekeeping.com or something like that. But it was this great article written by Elizabeth Gilbert about when she was nine years old and she wanted more than anything in the world to win a ribbon um, for for something that she had done at her fair. Mm -hmm. But she wasn't really, she was only nine. She wasn't really good at anything. And so she, what she did is she just did all kinds of things to enter at the fair. So many things that she says, it took her parents three trips in a station wagon to <laughs> deliver these things to the fair for the judging. And she couldn't wait to get there the day that the ribbons were going to be handed out because she was sure that, you know, quantity, <laughs> she had to win one. And she went through and she hadn't won anything, but a judge realized that 
she had put, you know, she had entered so many different things that he went in the back and made her um, a ribbon for most entries. And she's really happy about that. So this is this really cute, short, brief little essay about her. And then she brought it back to her book because she said at the end of the essay, she said, and this is what I brought to my writing, the same energy and the same push. And all of this is what I brought, you know, to my writing and this new book that I have coming out. So I think that once you have, once you have your book and if you've sold it traditionally or if you're self-publishing it, you need to set the book aside and then you need to figure out what your connection is to that book Hmm. and what, what your sort of what your talking point is. And it isn't just that you like this story or that you like to write. It's that somewhere in there is your story. Mm-hmm. And you need to find that story. And, and, and write essays and then go online and find the places that will publish these essays. Because what they say at the end of the essay is they say, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, this is her website and she has a new book coming out in a month. Yeah, such that's a smart that's strategy. How you, that's how you publicize a book because you're not asking people to buy your book. That's so easy for, for people to turn off that request. Mm-hmm. You're not asking them to buy your book. You're asking people to, to become involved with who you are and think, what an interesting person. I, I need to read their book. I think on this podcast so far, that's the best advice I've been given. And so I'm taking that to heart because I, I love it. Thank you so much. We'll see if I can capitalize on that advice. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, awesome. Any other tidbits of advice you want to share um, with aspiring authors like myself? And it doesn't have to be about publishing. How about marketing? How about um, your writing how to stay motivated because you've had a, a very nice career, you know, but I, did you have career lulls, ups and downs where you're just like, this is just always, yeah. <laughs> there were always, you know, always ups and downs. I mean, you know, it is no secret that, uh, that you have to be willing to deal with rejection mm-hmm. um, and, and, and you have to be willing to deal with it critically. And, and this is what my MFA taught me is that, Um, sometimes people just don't like something because it's not right for them. Mm -hmm. And when that's the case, they're not the right critic for you. Mm -hmm. And so you need to discard what they have to say. You can't please everybody. Mm -hmm. And, um, and just, you need, you need to find the people that say, God, I love your idea. Or I love, you know, your characters. I love something about this. I just think it needs to, you know, to be a little more. And those are your people. And you need to find and develop your people. That's fantastic. Do you have a readers group that you've developed to read your books before you submit for um, editing? Well, when I was, when I lived in California, I did. Um, Now that I'm up here, it's, um, it's a little more, we used to meet Mm -hmm. um, a month. And now that I'm up here, it's a little more loose Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I have people that I can draw on. Usually. Mm-hmm. Good. Because I found that a lot of authors talk about their beta readers and how helpful they are to them. And I started to think about that when I'm ready to have readers and think about, I kind of want people that 
um, I'm good friends with, but I really want good critical readers that are very avid readers themselves in different genres. And I was thinking about that. I have one picked out. I already told him he's going to be one of my readers. He's one of my librarian friends and he's a history buff, fanatic, fantastic. And yeah. he, and so I already told him, my, you're going to be one of my first readers. And so we'll work him into that. <laughs> so, so good. Do you know, do you know who Chuck Palahniuk is? I do. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he lives in Portland and mm-hmm. he has, he has a writer's group that, uh, I don't know him. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I know of him. I can't say no him. <laughs> Chuck, if you're listening. Um, but he, I have read about his writer's group and apparently they make each other cry. Oh, I love it. <laughs> you know, but, you know, they do it lovingly and, uh, you know. They get the job done. So, you know, you want someone that's going to be critical, not picky. Mm -hmm. And someone that's going to really push you, you know, to, 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 to do, to take the hard chances. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that brings out the best writing. So fantastic. So let me ask you this question. Um, when you were talking about promo before you were talking about writing some articles and getting them out before your book came out, what did you particularly, what was your talking point for to catch a killer? Uh, I'm curious. Well, I had two. Um, the main one was, uh, is probably what prompted my love for this genre anyway. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just going to read it to you because it's on, sure. it's in my bio, um, on, on the book. So yeah. And I can embellish on this if you, if you want. Yeah, yeah. So um, it says, when, when she was 12, her home was the target of a peeping Tom. Cheryl diligently photo- photographed his footprints and collected the candy wrappers he left behind. Unfortunately, he was never caught. But the desire to use evidence to solve a great mystery was sparked inside Scarborough all the same. So... My mother, um, my mother was, she was an actress and she was this beautiful actress. She had two daughters. It was just the three of us that lived in the house Mm -hmm. and we were plagued by a peeping Tom for more than a year. And what he he would do is he would, um, he would stay however long he would stay. But then before he would leave, he would like rattle the window or the door. He would do something to draw our attention. And then we'd call the police and they'd come out, and this is, you know, before they had all this DNA and all this stuff that they could test. And so they'd come out and they'd see where there were like cigarette butts stubbed out on the windowsill and footprints and candy wrappers and all this kinds of stuff that, that would indicate that he had been there for a while. Oh, how horrifying. It was. It was horrifying. And they would, you know, maybe to not scare Mm-hmm. I get it. <laughs> it would be sort of, you know, like sort of, oh, it's no big deal. And then they'd leave. And the next day I would go out there, I would come home from school and I would go out there and I'd, I'd I collected these cigarette butts and I'd look at them and, and I and then I'd be watching people. It's like, who's smoking, you know, that brand of cigarettes. Or, I love it. Who has that size shoe, you know, that kind of thing. Cause I always felt like, you know, I felt like it, it had to be someone in our neighborhood. So it had to be someone like right there locally, you know, mm-hmm. but he was never caught. Hmm. And so I did like my, one of the promotions that I did to promote the book was a combination of, um, you know, my stories, you know, because the thing, the thing that was scary about this, this peeping Tom is that he wanted us to know he had been there. Exactly. Yeah. Because he could have 
he could have peeped and gone and maybe we would have never known. But he wanted that little bit of fear too. And that excitement of fear with you guys, I think. Right. And that's pretty scary. And so I sort of juxtaposed my personal story with the, um, the notion of the disposable woman trope, which is, um, it's mostly, it's more in adult fiction and in TV and movies, but, uh, and like the, the Liam Neeson series, like, you know, Taken is a great example that comes comes to mind, but it's basically the women in the story are disposable. Mm -hmm. They're just there to provide, you know, compassion for, you know, the, the hero. And so you don't get to you don't get to know them. You don't they don't have any they don't have any personalities. Mm-hmm. They don't have you know pluses or flaws. And and in a way, it's um, you know being a, a woman author writer and you know a feminist. It's something that we want to sort of get away from absolutely because because it has the. It, it, the impact could desensitize people to violence against women. Yeah. And let's face it, a lot Speaking of violence. Language. <laughs> You're talking about my alley. Yeah. And it's the one character that makes me angriest out of all characters I see. Cause I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that was my, that was my talking point. And I, I wrote the, you know, I wrote the essay and sent it to my publisher and they you know, they, they sent it out and got it published. How absolutely fascinating. So thank you for sharing that. Cause I think it wraps around the idea that to be a really great author, regardless of what genre in your, you're in, you have to be able to write, um, across the board and eventually share your personal stories and bring those in so that you can let your readers know who you are. So they'll be interested to read your stories. So I think that's beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. You've given me personally a tremendous amount of food for thought um, right when I needed it at a time when I'm like, I need some more inspiration. (laughs) So thank you. I really, really appreciate it. So let's set up your reading. Whatever stage you need to set us for, for the reading, the situation, the background, the characters, without giving us too much information because you want to keep us hungry for more for the book. Okay. So uh, the book is called To Catch a Killer, and it's about 16-year-old Erin, who, when she was two years old, her mother was murdered, and the killer left her alive. Um, She was alone with her mother's dead body for three days, and then her mother's best friend um, showed up and rescued them, and her mother's best friend adopted her and has raised her. Aaron's mother never told anyone the identity of her father. And so Aaron wants to, at, at age 16, Aaron wants to know three things. One, she wants to know who killed her mother. Two, she wants to know the identity of her father. And three, she wants to know that he wasn't the killer. And the only thing that could answer this is a DNA database. And so Aaron has been exploring on her own uh, forensics and DNA, and she's enlisted the help of her high school biology teacher, Miss Peters. And Miss Peters has agreed to um, run DNA. Erin thinks that she has three candidates that could possibly be her father. And, and if Miss Peters says if she would get the DNA, she would run, run it and compare it to Erin's and see, you know, see if there was a match. So in the sky, like a giant Olympic gold medal, 
Its glow felt like praise. As predicted, I had acquired all three of my targeted DNA samples. Miss Peters' mailbox sat out by the curb on top of a short post. I opened it and shoved the bag of evidence inside. She didn't want to know which sample came from whom. Only I would have that information. She called it a blind study. As I was leaving, her front door blew open. Miss Peters? I edged up the walk. Even though she lived in an average neighborhood only a few miles from mine, the late hour gave the area a graveyard hush. As I approached her porch, a faint shadow in the shape of a cross bobbed low against the baseboard, sending terror through me like a drop of ink in water. Even once I realized it was just the moon shining through the slats of Miss P's trellis, the panic was overwhelming. Then the smell hit me. That smell triggered a memory so vivid and deep that it dropped me to my knees. It was a strong, raw scent, like shoving your face into a vat of pennies mixed with freshly ground hamburger. It was the smell of blood, lots of blood. And there she was, lying on her back inside the doorway. She floated on a huge sea of red. I might have screamed, I don't know. White noise filled my ears and my vision slid to gray. I crawled to her side, ignoring the wash of blood. I was there, but nowhere. I was breathing, but holding my breath. Oh, Miss Peters. A motion light in the front yard blinked on, shattering the dark. Someone was watching me from the shadows. Once he triggered the light, he ran, but I saw him clearly. And when I realized who it was, my insides filled with lead and sank all the way to my knees. The interrogation room door bursts open, introducing a whoosh of fresh air. Oh my God, Aaron. Rachel drops her purse and coat and rushes to me. Her arms circle my neck. She was my mother's best friend and the one who found her lifeless body. She scooped me up that day, and ever since, she has stood between me and any harm that might come, large or small. I know she would literally throw herself in front of a train for me. Without her, who knows where I would have ended up. I'm sorry I had to get you out of bed for this. Even though I feel bad, I'm grateful to have Rachel's warmth enveloping me. Now that she's here, I don't have to pretend to be so strong. Shh, I'm fine, just worried about you. Rachel brushes the hair off my face and runs her hands over my back and my arms as though she has to feel for herself that I'm really in one piece. Hovering, <clears throat> hovering near the door is Detective Sidney Rankle, Rachel's best friend. At the station, she acts more formal, but when she's at our house, she calls herself Aunt Sydney. I'll take it from here, Sydney says to Baldwin, but come get me when they bring him in. Rachel takes my face between her hands. Sydney says, you know the boy who did this. I open my mouth to speak, but Sydney beats me to it. Alleged, we can't say he did it, not yet. But you know him, right? He goes to your school. I nod. That settles it. We're changing schools, she says. No, it comes out frantic. I can't change. You don't know what's at work here, Rachel says. What I want to say is I was there, and you don't know what's at work here either. But now's not the time for that. We shouldn't knee-jerk, remember? That was my therapist's go-to phrase. Good for any occasion. I stopped seeing him a year ago. We weren't getting anywhere anyway, but I still use his words when they suit me. Changing schools is not an option. Rachel needs to hear that. She keeps her hands on my shoulders and holds me out away from her while she scans my face. Then she squeezes me in close, rocking us both from side to side. I'm so sorry this happened. You must have been terrified. I was. What if I caused it? 
and Miss P's death is my fault. What then? There's a light knock. Sydney opens the door. It's Baldwin. He nods his head toward the squad room. He's coming in now. I'll be right there. Sydney glances at us. Rachel's arms are wrapped tightly around me. Take her home, she says. Keep her home tomorrow. I'll be in touch. Baldwin leads a group past the door. One in the middle is taller than the others, and his hands are cuffed behind his back. Caramel tufts of hair curl against a chiseled profile that's pale beneath the tan. There's a quick jolt of recognition. I wasn't expecting to see him here like this. I definitely hope he doesn't see me. Journey Michael's jaw tightens. His gaze sweeps the room, looking for who or what brought this down on his head. For the second time today, he looks directly at me. Only this time, instead of sizzle, his expression reveals an anger so hot it could melt tungsten. I expected him to look different to me now. I mean, if he's a killer, he should look different, right? I can't help it, though. I still feel a tug. There's something about Journey Michaels that draws me to him. I bury my face in Rachel's shoulder, and she strokes my hair. Hey, it's okay to cry, you know. This is one of those times. Rachel means well, but she never truly gets it. Bravo. I love the story. Thank you for sharing it with us. So listeners, go find Cheryl. Her information will be on our show notes for sure. The book will be available to you to find on show notes. Find her on Facebook, and um, she's also on Instagram and Twitter. Follow her, get her book. Let her know you heard her on the podcast. And um, when you, um, if you want, we can bring you back later for your other book or anything else that you've written and published. We'll bring you back so that we. All right, that, that sounds fantastic. I would love to come back. Awesome. Thanks for being here with us. All right. Thank you, Vicki. So one final note, podcast listeners, I wanted to remind you now that we're in the middle of October that um, the Salau Review from Laura Columbia College is an award-winning literary and visual arts magazine, and they are currently in the month of October accepting literary arts submissions. You can find information about it in the show notes. If you live in the Laura Columbia region, I encourage you to um, send a submission for their volume 19. If you're selected... Um, to be in the Salau Review, let me know. Keep in touch with me on social media, and I'll have you on the podcast this summer. I also wanted to share with you podcast listeners that going into the month of November, we won't be producing any podcast episodes as I'm taking the month of November off for NaNoWriMo. I'm going to be working on that book we talked about on the podcast. So we'll see you December 1st. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hoped you loved hearing from the author as much as we did. If you did enjoy the author, make sure you find them on social media. Buy their book and write a review. Are you a published author and would like to be featured on the podcast? Visit us at our website to learn more. You can help support the production of this podcast by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Share the podcast with your friends. And most importantly, become a supporter. Supporters receive monthly bonus podcasts and a newsletter filled with tips from our authors. To find out more how to become a supporter, visit our website. And finally, I hope you always remember to enjoy the journey. Until next week, this is Vicki J. Carter saying goodbye.